This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. Okay, so for our hot question of the day, we want you to put your prediction hat on. Okay, we want you to look into the future, maybe. Predict what's going to happen next week. We always try to do this before an election, and I really want to hear your prediction of, you know, who's going to win. Hey, if you feel like giving me a seat count absolutely give me a seat count too, which is always fun. Simi at cknw.com. We're keeping it a little more simple though for our hot question of the day. We just want to know straight up, do you think any party is going to win a majority of seats in the election coming on Monday? Simple. Yes, we'll see a majority. No, we will see a minority. Pretty easy, right? So go to Sarah 980 on Twitter or go to at CKNW on Twitter. Cast your vote on that. Make your predictions. You can also respond to me as well by making a prediction on our buzz line, 604-331-BUZZ. That's 331-2899. Uh, or as I said, drop me an email, simi at cknw.com. What do you think is going to happen on Monday? Let's hear your prediction. You think it's a majority, minority? What's it going to be? That is our hot question of the day. Well, we are getting down to the final days now. I mean, today's Friday, election is on Monday, so we have to get a weekend of campaigning out of the way before everybody votes and we can finally find out what the results are going to be. It's been an interesting campaign, more for things that haven't happened, like true movement in the polls to have any kind of a breakout winner on this. We're going right down to the wire. And then there's the issues that we have talked about, right? And the issues that we have not talked about. We had a great discussion on that earlier this week about things you wish had come up uh, during this election campaign. But what are those ones as well, top of mind with you, that come to your mind as you're getting ready to vote on Monday? We're going to talk more about this now with the help of our global national reporter, Mike Armstrong, who's been looking into this issue. And he joins us to talk more about it. Mike, thanks for being here. Oh, no sweat. You have been talking a lot about this in recent days, about people who felt like issues, some issues got ignored. Like which issues? Yeah, well, we put out a call and we just asked the you know viewers to, to send us what they thought was being ignored or maybe what has them excited. We called it ignored and excited. And I've got a couple of hundred suggestions from people. Um, I'll tell you, one of the main ones uh, that started pouring in right away, we got uh, dozens of emails, actually, and one fax uh, was seniors uh, who said that their issues they, they didn't feel are, are being covered adequate, adequately in this uh, campaign. It's interesting that you said one fax, because that kind of tells you as well <laughs> that they felt very strongly about the seniors' issues. Someone went to a lot of effort to send that in. And yes. by the way, the younger people in our newsroom were shocked to see the fax machine work. A lot of them don't even know what that is. Believe me, I've heard that around here too. So, you know, we heard that as well uh, when we were talking about that this week that, you know, and we know the seniors are the ones who get out and vote and yet they feel like they are not being paid enough attention to. As one woman, we, we actually went out to a, a senior center in Kingston, a really neat one, actually, uh, Kingston, Ontario. It's a um, an old elementary school, and they have activities just running all day long. Uh, I had my butt kicked, by the way, by an 87-year-old uh, ping-pong master, I would say. Uh, <laughs> and we spoke to them, and they said, look, you know, the politicians are ignoring us. That's how they felt, and they do so at their own peril because there's no group that votes more than seniors. Millennials, the last time around, they sort of did okay uh, as far as turnout. They almost hit 60%. Uh, but seniors went to the ballot box at 80%. So there you go. There's the difference. You don't want to ignore that group. No kidding. Do you get a sense that they are motivated to get out and vote because of all this? 
Uh, absolutely. I mean, and, and it's funny because with seniors, it's not one issue. It's all sorts of different issues. Um, obviously, they know the healthcare system. They tend to know the healthcare system uh, and, and the problems or the challenges that it's facing and, and the, the difficulties you can have going into it sometimes. Uh, they talked about uh, there were a lot of people on fixed incomes who said, look, uh, what we're making doesn't keep up with inflation. That's a big problem. So you, you really did hear all sorts of different things. And, and they said, look, you know, we, we are an aging population in this country. Uh, and one woman said, you know, they basically need a sort of Canada-wide approach. Uh, this is a problem that has to be attacked like climate change. Everybody. Do they feel that any party got close to this? No, that didn't really come out. I'll tell you one of the interesting things that I walked away from from those people with, sort of this impression they left me with, uh, was that they also, they didn't only worry about themselves. I heard over and over from people saying, look, uh, First Nations issues are super important to me as well. Um, there were people who said, you know, homelessness is a huge problem, and, and I had a comfortable bed to sleep in last night. Uh, I had one gentleman who had this almost beautiful um, little monologue on the healthcare system, and he said, uh, I love paying my taxes so that it goes to healthcare. I, I hope I never have to use it, but if I never do, I'm, I'm not going to be banging on my casket saying, give me back my money. I want everybody to be healthy. It was, it was kind of neat. So I did walk away probably hearing le- fewer complaints than I expected to hear. Okay, that's actually very nice. That's very, and <laughs> I guess, Mike, that also shows you where we're at, right, with this election campaign and just kind of the discussion of politics these days in general. Yeah, I, well, hopefully. I mean, it's funny because uh, in talking about these issues with people and, and, and finding that people think they're not being talked about, most people turned around and said, but we're hearing lots of personal attacks and, and that yeah. maybe there's a lot of the bandwidth in this campaign that's being taken up with that instead. What about affordability? Is that an issue that came up a lot? Oh, boy. Uh, super interesting and a, a much bigger problem than I was aware, I would say. Um, one of the emails we got was a gentleman out in Pemberton, B.C., uh, it's a couple hours north of uh, Vancouver, um, which is not necessarily a place you'd expect to have this housing crisis, like a, a real crisis of affordability. Um, but he said that he was living in an old trailer, and that's the only thing he could afford, a family of five, 540 square feet. So we went out and met him and and talk to him about what he's going through um and it's it's just a problem from coast to coast that in the 90s uh developers basically stopped building rental units yeah. uh they turned to condos instead and things like that and so we've watched the population grow we've watched people get priced out of home ownership and yet no one's building rental units um, so, and then we have other rental units that are taken off the market for things like Airbnb, stuff like that. I saw a statistic that the University of Charlottetown has grown by like a third since 2004, and they've built no residences. So that's another, you know, that's a town yeah. that's struggling with, uh, actually, Charlottetown's one of the worst, uh, hardest hit areas by this affordability crisis. They, they're excuse me, vacancy rate is somewhere uh, below like 0.4%. Like it's incredible. We also, when we were at Kingston with the seniors, that was another issue that came up and they said, look, Queens keeps growing and taking in more students and there's no more, there aren't more rental units being built. You know, this is, Mike, that's a story that we, has been very, very popular here on the West Coast for all the wrong reasons, obviously. Yeah. I mean, affordability has been hot here for two, three years now. It was a, a huge impact on our last provincial election two years ago. So it's interesting for me to hear from you that this is now right across the country. Do you think that's something politicians overlooked? 
I think that's probably the case. And I'll tell you, as somebody from another part of the country, I have heard that problem many, many times out your way. Yeah. And so when I, when I started looking into this, I was surprised, as, as you say, that it's so widespread in Canada. And, we're, and all the experts I spoke to say it used to be a big city problem. That is no longer the case. Now it is big cities, medium cities, and small towns. Everyone's suffering with this. Right. Everyone is being squeezed by this. Like to say that Charlottetown is feeling that, I think a lot of people would be surprised, don't you think? I was blown away. Okay. So affordability, definitely top of mind. What about the environment? Did people feel that was being overlooked? You know, uh, that didn't come up as much as you might expect. Oh, which is, a, yeah, uh, the, yeah, that is kind of a funny one. As I scroll through my hundreds of emails, which I put together <laughs> in alphabetical order, um, yeah, it came up a couple of times. I had one person say that whales are an issue that they'd like addressed. I had a couple of people in uh, Manitoba point out that Lake Winnipeg has a problem with algae and stuff like that, so they're concerned about specific uh, issues in their uh, riding. Um, but you know what? It's funny, as you flag that, I'm kind of shocked that it didn't come up uh, more often. Yeah, you're right. So it sounds, though, and I've certainly had this impression over the last week, and with your reporting then over the last week, have you gotten the sense from people that they are kind of unsatisfied with how this campaign went? I I would absolutely say that, yes. Uh, As a matter of fact, I had several people send send in defense and sort of foreign policy, saying, right. "Look, uh, we don't know what's going on in the Arctic. Uh, you know, Russia and China are making noise up there, and we're not doing enough." And I thought, "Okay, well, I'll look into that." So I called a couple of experts and said, "Do you guys find that this is the case?" And the gentlemen that I spoke to were shocked and appalled at how little. Uh, coverage or little bandwidth that, that uh, foreign policy and the military have gotten in this campaign. They say they watch the debates. For example, uh, this was an interesting one. Four years ago, we had this aging fleet of fighter jets, and the, the F-35 was a huge issue in the right. campaign. Four years later, we still have the aging fleet of fighter jets, and, we, and no one's talking about its replacement. Um, so how, how does that happen? Why is it such a, uh, a less important issue? Why does it feel like it's being treated as a less important issue? When, in fact, uh, everyone who watches this type of thing argues that the world is a more dangerous place than it was four years ago. Between China and Russia, you know, China's active in, um, uh, well, the South uh, China Sea. You know, they said yeah. they, uh, they put up those islands and they claimed all this land uh, sort of as their territory. Well, they're trying to join the Arctic Council uh, because they say that the North is a global resource. So when they say they have no military intentions, and uh, that's something that makes people somewhat nervous. Russia, what's going on in Ukraine, they're even in this hemis- hemisphere. I mean, the U.S. has told Russia, stay out of Venezuela. They go to Venezuela anyway. Uh, the prime minister of Russia was in uh, Cuba just a couple of weeks ago, uh, sort of renewing military and economic ties. So the world, you know, is more dangerous than four years ago. We're just not talking about it. Well, that is so fascinating. Listen, Mike, thanks so much for sharing all that info with us. Thank you. That's Mike Armstrong, Global National Reporter. The series that he's been working on all this week is called Ignored and Ignited. Yeah, I think it's fair to say that for the last couple of years, we have discussed and debated the issue of money laundering in our province. And because of all of that public demand, you know, from you, the provincial government called a public inquiry into the issue earlier this year. Well, that inquiry has started this morning. So how is this going to unfold? What do we expect to hear with all of this? Joining us now to talk more about that is David Eby, the Attorney General of the province. Thank you very much for being here. 
Good morning. So how is this going to work uh, for the next little while? Like people expect to start hearing testimony right away, but I don't, is that going to happen? Uh, well, um, the commission itself, uh, Commissioner Cullen, is in full control of the process. It's independent of government, and that's the way it should be with a public inquiry. Uh, people want to know that the process is free from interference by any government, uh, current or former. Uh, and so that's the way it's structured. So it's, uh, it's entirely in the commissioner's hands. What I understand the process is, uh, is they're making decisions about who gets standing. That means who gets to show up. Uh, and uh, cross-examine witnesses or uh, perhaps make submissions at certain uh, key points in the inquiry. Uh, Standing can have different rights, and so it could be that they get to potentially call witnesses or or cross-examine witnesses or that they're only able to make argument once everything's done. Uh, And so those decisions all have to be made about who gets to participate. And so we've already seen uh, applications from uh, current and former BC Lotteries Corporation employees, for example, um, from uh, uh, from different uh, stakeholders, uh, from the casino uh, lobbying organization, uh, from uh, various service providers in the province. Uh, so the commissioner will have to sort out who gets to participate and how as a preliminary matter. Um, I understand the schedule is that they are going to hear um, preliminary, uh, preliminary matters like that, as well as maybe some broad uh, uh, witnesses to set context that are non-controversial in the lead up to or, or in the end of this year and then early next year uh, in the spring, uh, be beginning with uh, with uh, witnesses and cross examination that people might be expecting. Now, what are the frames of reference for this? What do you hope to get out of this? Well, there are some. There's a very explicit uh, terms of reference document that people can read if they're interested online about what the commission has specifically been asked to look into. Uh, but broadly, I think for most British Columbians, myself included, uh, we want to know. How did uh, the lower mainland of Vancouver become a hub for international money laundering? Uh, Who knew what, when, uh, what decisions were made to either allow this to continue or to ignore it or to facilitate it? Uh, Was there issues of corruption of individuals or organizations? Uh, Or was it simply a a large-scale failure of of oversight? Um, There are many developments that have happened uh, on this matter that could be looked into by the Commission, everything from the decision to stay, uh, uh, the, the prosecution of uh, what uh, Peter German at least believes is one of the largest, not the largest, anti-money laundering prosecutions in Canadian history, the Silver International case, that decision made by federal prosecutors, um, and, and what was that uh, all about? Or it could be uh, as broad as uh, issues and allegations of uh, corruption involving a senior RCMP uh, member recently came to the news who uh, who came to prominence because he was using a cell phone from a company in Richmond that sold encrypted cell phones uh, to criminals around the world, uh, uh, based in Richmond, of all places, and uh, and prosecuted and pled guilty in the United States. Uh, and uh, it was a senior RCMP officer, allegedly, who was using one of these phones, and, and that led to an investigation and his arrest. So uh, this is all a matter of public record in the media, uh, uh, lots of areas where the commission could be looking at these issues, uh, but at its core, I think for many people, it's just this feeling like if I play by the rules, if I pay taxes, if I am working uh, at a job, I'm at an unfair uh, disadvantage compared to people who are engaging in money laundering, tax evasion, uh, and uh, and having the run of the province without accountability. And, and how did that happen for so long? How big of a problem do you think money laundering still is in B.C.? Uh, we know it's still a, a serious issue. Um, the uh, reports that we have is uh, it's in the billions of dollars that it influences uh, real estate prices in our province, especially, I believe, in the 
areas where it's concentrated in the lower mainland and in higher end uh, neighborhoods uh, in our province. And so uh, I believe it's still a serious issue. I haven't seen, unfortunately, yet an indication of significant additional resources coming uh, uh, from the federal government uh, dedicated to this issue that we face in lower mainland. They've announced the funding. Uh, Now we need to make sure that that funding actually comes to British Columbia and specifically uh, the metro region uh, to begin to crack down on some of this because it has an international aspect. We understand that uh, organized criminal groups from Mexico, from the Middle East, uh, from China are operating in the lower mainland and uh, that this is driving a lot of the activity. And so uh, we really do need uh, some serious attention on this. Right. So, but there's been all sorts of press conferences, right? The federal government, you know, up until this election campaign said they were doing things. Were those provinces empty? Well, the, uh, so um, there are uh, good pieces and there are not so good pieces. Uh, let's, let's put it uh, as politely as I can. The good pieces are uh, that the criminal code uh, was amended to make it a criminal offense. Uh, to uh, essentially to recklessly engage in uh, money laundering. You don't have to know anymore the specific criminal offense that uh, generated the money. If you're reckless about your conduct, someone hands you a duffel bag full of $20 bills and you help them deliver it somewhere, that should be sufficient to trigger a criminal investigation and prosecution now, which is a very significant and an important development in the criminal law. I'm very grateful to the federal government for making that change. What's not great is uh, when Peter German went to visit uh, the RCMP officers who we all believed were working on uh, in a dedicated way on money laundering after two years of headlines uh, in our province about the scandal, uh, the international scandal of the Vancouver model and uh, that this was taking place here and that we'd become a hub for money laundering. And then he found that there were uh, literally no dedicated uh, officers working on money laundering in that uh, department um, outside of the civil forfeiture regime. Uh, that's a pretty serious issue, and I haven't seen uh, anywhere uh, an indication that that's been addressed. The feds have announced additional funding. We don't know how much is coming to BC. Uh, we don't know when it's coming to BC, and and uh, we obviously have gone into an election now, so those questions will uh, not be answered until after the election. Right, but usually during an election campaign, that's when you know provinces hope to press to get some answers. Have any of the parties talked in a sufficient way, do you, in your opinion, about money laundering in BC and the issues here? Yeah, I think that all uh, British Columbians should be engaging with uh, people who call them on the phone uh, and ask them to go and vote for their parties and ask them what uh, the commitments are to deal with this at the federal level. I agree that it uh, it's an ideal time for parties to make their positions clear. My hope uh, through all of this has been that the issue is not partisan at the federal level, that all parties um, understand that Canada's international reputation and that, uh, frankly, public confidence in the rule of law in Metro Vancouver is... Uh, is jeopardized the longer that this goes unaddressed. Um, and I do think that all the parties are recognizing that in different ways. Uh, and my hope is that whoever gets elected, whether it's a majority government or a minority parliament or whichever party, that uh, we have a strong partner in Ottawa that's willing to work with us on this. Are you concerned, though? Because like, if there's any more confusion in Ottawa or, you know, things are, um, you know, not solid uh, and fluctuating, are you concerned that this issue won't get the attention that it should be getting? Well, you know, personally, I want clarity on a couple of things, and and one of those uh, pieces uh, is going to come through the public inquiry, and that's clarity about how we got here and uh, who was responsible and uh, how we can best uh, uh, deal with the issue from the perspective of what the Commission uncovers, and I do expect the Commission will uncover information that we don't 
know already, which is why we established the commission in the first place. The second is clarity around whether British Columbia is going it alone on this. If, uh, if we, uh, at least if we get a message from Ottawa, you, you know, we're not going to fund additional police resources on this, uh, then we'll have a clear answer and, uh, and we can move forward from there. And, uh, but my, my sincere hope is that the, is that the feds, whoever is elected, uh, will dedicate resources to this because it is critically important for so many people in the region. Do you think there's more the province can do? Like, what's on your plate to further this issue? Yeah, there's a lot more the province can do, and there's lots that we're doing. I mean, everything from uh, the rollout of our world-leading property registry that will require the disclosure of who actually owns property, so no more people with no apparent source of income, the the students and the housewives buying some of the most expensive real estate in Vancouver, numbered companies where you don't know who the actual owner of the company is buying property, uh, and flipping multiple times between uh, offshore trusts and, and other un- un- unidentifiable purchasers, you have to actually declare who the owner is, and that'll be a public registry available to journalists and international uh, police uh, and others to, who are looking for uh, people who are hiding the proceeds of crime. We want to make British Columbia as unattractive as possible. The fact that you won't be able to start a company uh, anymore in British Columbia and hide who the actual owner of the company is, which you've been able to do for many years in our province, which is totally unacceptable and quite astounding, uh, that is changing as well. Um, and beyond that, uh, increased enforcement. So in our casinos, we've increased the presence of the regulator and decreased suspicious cash transactions by 100 times from the peak. And, uh, and in addition, uh, we have a, a transactions team, uh, police, BC Lottery Corporation, our regulator working together to identify suspicious coordinated activities. And then outside of that, we've continued funding for the joint integrated uh, policing team around uh, gambling. And we're working with um, police around identifying ways to be more effective in, in policing generally in the province. And hopefully we'll be doing that in partnership with the federal government. Now, you mentioned the gambling revenue there. So all these things that you've done, has that impacted gambling revenue in the province? Yes, um, we've seen a, a decline of about 30 to $40 million in uh in high stakes uh, gambling. So these are people uh, who are gambling table games um, and uh, betting large amounts of money uh, that has declined and, and it's cost the province about 30 to $40 million. And our uh, initial projections that we received indicated that that was going to be a one-year phenomenon, but it seems like uh, it is continuing, which to me is actually good news uh, that we've uh, stopped this activity if it's associated with criminality. The concern that I have with it uh, is whether or not the activity has gone to illegal gaming houses or whether uh, the money uh, that uh, that was involved here has gone to other other places like luxury cars and so on. And so we're working on that as well. Right. So are you happy with the state of affairs at BCLC? Do you think they've done enough to tackle this? Um, so we have a, a brand new board at uh, the BC Lottery Corporation, and uh, we have a bunch of people who are very dedicated at the staff level to working on this issue. Um, I think that, uh, and, and it's so, uh, frankly, um, it's hard to know uh, yeah. all of the things that happened before we formed government, but certainly since we formed government, uh, BC Lottery Corporation has been a good partner in cracking down and making sure that uh, that service providers understand that they can't accept this money anymore uh, and putting forward uh, options for us to make sure that, uh, that British Columbians can have confidence in our gaming industry. Um, and so uh, we've turned a corner there, uh, but this problem that we face in our province is that the money goes somewhere else. And so even if we've chased it out of our regulated casinos, is it going to illegal casinos? Is it going to other places? And that's where our work is set up for us. All right. Uh, Minister Eby, thank you for your time on this. Thanks for having me. That is David Eby, Attorney General of the province, talking about the issue of money laundering on this day when the Cullen Inquiry is kicking off. 
So apparently you should be bracing yourself if you need to drive through downtown Vancouver this afternoon. The environmental group Extinction Rebellion Vancouver is once again said once again says that they are planning on holding another traffic disruption today. You may remember last week uh, when they shut down the Burrard Bridge all day long. This time they say they're going to be holding uh, a snake march through the downtown core. Uh, they say this is to highlight the urgent need for action on climate change, but we obviously wanted to talk more about this. Joining us now is Joseph Wolf, Extinction Rebellion Vancouver's volunteer spokesperson. Joseph, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. What is planned for today? So we will be meeting at uh, Queen Elizabeth Plaza, just across from the CBC, and we will be starting from there to march uh, throughout the city um, with have a distinct plan about where we're going yet that's going to be decided by the people there on the day and we will just be marching down through the streets um giving out information playing some music uh dancing hopefully and uh, moving down the street uh, for an uh, indeterminate amount of time how many people have signed up to do this today um we expect probably in the area of uh, about 100 to 150 right Joseph, what what is the end objective with doing something like this? Like, what do you hope to achieve? Well, this is uh, to note the tail end of the international two week of, uh, international two weeks of rebellion that XR has been doing globally, and uh, today is the last day of that. So we wanted to do another action just to um, put a nice rounding off to everything, but also. It's the same goals as last time, which are for the government to tell the truth, for us to uh, bring uh, emissions to net zero by 2025 and to set up citizens' assemblies to deal with environmental issues as opposed to just waiting for uh, waiting for the government right. to make decisions. Now, Joseph, like you would obviously you would need public support for that, right? Yeah. Do you think you're getting public support, though, by doing things this way? Um, I think that the evidence shows that we are getting public support. Uh, we've been, uh, membership has gone up dramatically over the past week and uh, fundraising as well. Have um, you have you been watching what's happening elsewhere? I know there were some headlines about, you know, commuters getting frustrated in London, England, for instance. Yes, um, that was an unfortunate incident. Um, and that was something done by what we call an, an affinity group. And that group did that action um, even though they had pulled the rest of XR London and uh, a majority of XR had said that they weren't in support of that action. They still went ahead. These things um, unfortunately can happen with the way that we have uh, decentralized structure in our movement, but we are discussing ways already in how to mitigate the possibility of that happening again. Right, but that does that not make it tougher, though, for the larger group because, you know, other people see that and that they feel that frustration. Yeah, um, I, there are things that are going to happen along the way, but we are our goals are clear and our message is clear, so we're moving towards that. So yes, there are going to be mistakes made along the way, but we're we're not losing our determination there. Right. So if you're trying to win people over, Joseph, to to the cause, mm-hmm. how do you think like preventing people from say getting home or where they have to go on a Friday afternoon does that? Well, these actions are made to disrupt one to have, so we are having conversations like this on the radio, but also so that um, we get the attention of our local politicians and the global rebellion was to get the attention of politicians around the world, which 
if you have been watching the headlines this past two weeks, there's been a lot going on all over the world and a lot of eyes brought to the scene. So we, although we are trying to bring people to our side, a lot of people actually already are there and they're very happy to see people taking this kind of action in the streets. So there are some people who are clearly upset, but side of so we're moving forward still right but i mean if, if you're not going to get to do what you want to do though if more people don't join you you can't just be happy with the people that you've got right now yes but what i but those people are i'm but what i'm saying is that we are getting people who are joining us it's yes there are some people who are against us and that will always be the case but uh we, from the membership increases we've had over the past week, from the fundraising increases that we've had over the past week, it's clear that we are reaching quite a, a good portion of the population and we uh, are working towards that goal. Can you put a number on that? Like how much of an increase? How how much more fundraising? Um, I can't put an exact number on it because that's not where I'm, I am in particular, but we've had our t- talk had record numbers. Our, our fundraising has increased by in the measure of thousands. So I can't give you exact numbers, but we have been growing substantially. What is the better, okay, given that then, so what is the better well, end result for the group then, Joseph? Like if you're going to have a protest like this today, last week mm-hmm. the police got a lot of criticism for just allowing the protest to continue on the Broad Street Bridge. Is the mm-hmm. better result to just allow you to happen with no interference or do you want more headlines from causing more disruption? Well, that's kind of a, you know, weird way, a win-win situation for us. If we are able to continue our action, that's uh, great. We get to reach people. And then if we do get headlines from things like arrests, so then that also helps what we're trying to do. So we're happy to allow both of those things to happen. And the police did let us stay on the bridge last week. And um, I think that their reasons for that were very clear in their interviews that they did afterwards. And I think that people should respect that. So is this the last event that is planned? Um, It's the last event in the International Week of Rebellion, but there will be events continuing until we start to see real action on climate change and we have uh, some of our demands met. So it's the last concrete one that's happening in the next two weeks, but uh, I can't say that there won't be something that happens then as well. You talk about your demands being met, but what level of government is going to meet your demands? Like, how is protesting on the streets of downtown Vancouver going to make that happen? Well, we are clearly all over Canada, in Toronto, Ottawa, Halifax, Montreal, uh, the prairies as well. Um, So uh, that happening on a nationwide scale brings brings attention to us, to Ottawa, but also there will be that we will be engaging with our local governments from the provincial and the municipal level. And we're already trying to work to build those relationships, and that's growing as well. Joseph, thank you for your time today. Great. Have a good night or that, day. Sorry. That's Joseph Wolf, the Extinction Rebellion Vancouver volunteer spokesperson. They are planning what they call a snake march through the downtown core today. It starts down by the Queen Elizabeth Theatre, the plaza out front there. I would avoid that area. Uh, this afternoon. They're supposed to be starting at around four. And as you heard there, it doesn't really sound like there's uh, any incentive for them to, to to not do this, essentially. And for the police, I can understand how frustrating that is because it's a no-win situation, right? If, they, if the police crack down, move in and arrest everybody, they still get lots of headlines. And that's actually what they're looking for. So how does it happen? How does someone 
anyone gets sucked into a cult. I mean, obviously, you don't think that's what it is in the beginning, right? At first, it sounds like, oh, maybe you're just taking some self-help classes. But at some point, that changes. Would you be able to see if that was you? Well, that is one of the intriguing questions that comes up in this new book that is getting a lot of attention. It's called Scarred, The True Story of How I Escaped Nexium. This is the cult that bound my life. That's what the book says. Uh, Sarah Edmondson wrote the book. She was a former member for 12 years, and she joins us now in studio to talk about that. Sarah, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. How has this been for you, talking about this? Well, at first, it was kind of exciting to have this platform to feel like I had a voice to speak for all these people that were in Nexium and and to shine a light on the abuses of power that happen in not just cults, but in organizations and families. And I felt like I had this template and I want to share it. And that was really motivating for me because um, I've always wanted to help people. Obviously, I, I bet on the wrong horse when I chose Nexium, but now I'm going back to, you know, helping people again. And that was great. But then after some time and, re, you know, regurgitating the story over and over and over again and having a little win and not sleeping, it's been, it's been stressful, to be honest. Like I needed to dial back and go back to simple things, parenting, sleeping. Right. <laughs> yeah. uh, the book is quite like gets into a lot of details mm-hmm. about this. Nexium is a cult that you've heard a lot about in the news. How, how long have you been out of it now? Actually, yesterday was the two-year anniversary of when the New York Times was released, and that was the first time a big major press outlet uh, wrote about Nexium. so two years ago to, uh, yesterday. But I've been out since June of 2017, uh, officially, although it, in May is when I was starting to unwind and deprogram and figure out, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm in a cult, and how did this happen? What made you realize that, though? Because you'd been 12 years, been 12 right? years. So. And also 12 years of, of people saying, oh, Sarah and her cult, you know, and in a jokey way, in a kind of, there was a lot of people who, who teased me a little bit that I was maybe in a cult, but nobody really, nobody ever sat me down to do an intervention. Nobody ever sat me down seriously until the end was one of the things I talk about in the book when my, when my friend like walked me through all the media and said, how can this be true. And of course, I responded with, well, that's a smear campaign, which is what I'd been taught. And he said, well, that's not exactly how the media works. You can't have all of this untrue things. Or even if 10% of this is true, doesn't that disturb you? And that was actually one of the the, the seeds that was planted in my head as a, a crack in my foundation. Right. And But that t- just to answer your question, that wasn't the moment. There was many moments that happened over time that um, there's a cult expert uh, named Yanya Lalich who speaks about when people are leaving an abusive relationship or when they wake up from something like a cult. It's n- not always just one thing. An event happens, you put it on a shelf. Another thing happens, you put it on the shelf. You hear something, you put it on the shelf. And one day the shelf breaks and that's your wake up. So let's backtrack yeah. here a little bit. Let's start at the beginning. Um, when I was reading through your book, I think it's so clear that in the, in initially, for a lot of people who end up in a cult, they think they're they're doing something to better themselves, mm-hmm. right? They think was that what it was like for you that you were you were taking a self help class? Absolutely, I was part of a um, a personal and professional development program. I thought I was learning how to evolve myself and transform my belief systems that were getting in my own way and. You probably know this, but Vancouver is a hotbed for groups such as these. I did not know that. Oh, yes. Why is oh. Vancouver a hotbed? I think the Vancouver and West Coast in general is a little bit more, maybe more open than the East Coast. A lot of seekers, a lot of spiritual people. And 
ESPN and Axiom were, were one of many, if not hundreds of maybe even thousands of groups that exist, and many in Vancouver, I think because people really do want to and believe that they can change. And so they get involved in groups like this, or people are seeking community, or they or they're, want to be more successful. And I'm not going to name those groups, but I think everyone here in Vancouver has been invited to at least one of these free information nights where they can hear about one of these said groups. <laughs> Which is um, make better decisions or free yourself or you know something like that. Yeah, or understanding your past so that you don't have to relive the same um, story and, and um, you know, live in your own head and your own drama right. and, and take more responsibility for your life, which are, you know, great things. But when those groups become your life versus using the tools in your life, that's when it crosses the line to being more culty. Or so how does that happen? So like you go to those meetings, mm-hmm. you go, okay, that's pretty good. Mm-hmm. Go to another one, make some friends. Mm-hmm. That's a pretty slippery slope. It's a very slippery slope. And that's one of the main uh, methods that cults are able to recruit. And I think, and I, people always ask me, like, I'm part of this group. Do you think it's a cult? And I, I, I lay out <laughs> some of the signs and I say, well, is this happening or is this happening? And I think if you go to a seminar and you get some tools for your life and you go back to your life and you use them, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But when then you then start investing all your time and resources into the group, perhaps becoming a coach, giving your time for free. A lot of us were in Nexium worked for free for many, many years in the in what was called like an internship. And I think that's one of the slippery slopes that people get into. They think they're doing something for the better, the good of the group or the mission. And then before they know it, they spent 10 years in a group not getting paid and and may, maybe maybe they're further ahead in their lives right. or not, but they feel connected to something and they feel purposeful and meaningful and that uh, kind of thing. Now, the man behind all of this is Keith Rainier. Did, and there was all, it seems like it was all women, too, that surrounded him or have been in the headlines for all of this. Did you ever have doubts at that point? Or did, did yeah. you think, no, we're all just doing this because Keith thinks this is a good idea? I had many doubts along the way, and obviously hindsight is twenty twenty, and that's one of the things that's been hard getting out of Nexium for all of us, I think, is to look back at what we missed and, in, in essence, how we were delusional. What delusion were we buying into that we missed that led us to believe that ultimately Keith was somebody who he was not, which is how all cult leaders operate. They have a persona with lots of you know uh, charisma, and they have a whole image that's maintained and propped up by people around them as they're these great gurus or leaders or whatever. Um, but with women, there were men around him too, but generally it was the women that sort of took care of him and drove him around and fed him. And You didn't think that was weird? I definitely thought it was weird, but it was it was painted as he's got, he's so busy, you know, writing curriculum and, and researching and, and changing the world. He doesn't have time to cook and drive and things like that. So Okay. It, yeah. So, Sarah, I have to ask <laughs> you course. then at that point. When... <laughs> How? Like how? How did how do you, you not, miss that? Yeah. How do you miss that? That's the thing. Those red flags. You, a red flag is something that you see, and then you have you can't wrap your head around. And so, and in my case, I would ask somebody if I had something that I felt uncomfortable with, and there was always a good answer. And one of the red flags from day one is that we had to call Keith Vanguard. Now that is a definitely a red flag to call some. You know, you know the the head of a program Vanguard, and if I said something, which I did, and many people did, like that's weird, and I don't want to call this guy I've never met Vanguard and bow to him and say thank you Vanguard after every class. Yes. I'm sorry, you had to do that. Yes, yep. And then if you weird, it, yeah, right. If you raise that as an issue, all of this, this is one of the things that's very brilliant about cults, and Nexium did this really well. Is before they even told us that, they said that if you feel uncomfortable, 
in the class. If you feel like something's internally you feel off and that you have the, they called it the urge to bolt, which is to leave, which I definitely had. That means that we're on an issue and there's something in the curriculum that's exposing something for you to work on. For example, they made it your issue instead of their issue. So when I didn't like Vanguard, that became my issues with authority. And that I didn't feel I wasn't capable of paying tribute to what somebody had built. And they would dismiss it very easily. Vanguard means the leader of a philosophical movement. And that's what he is. So that's what we call him. And we call him Keith. We call him V. And it's not a big deal. So they made everything weird less weird. And you grow used to that over time. Because they were always telling you it's you, not them. Yes. Yeah. And I unfortunately bought into that. Some people didn't. Some people on day one would say, I'm not calling somebody Vanguard. And then they leave and and we'd give them their money back and we'd say, well, they just weren't, you know, they had issues around authority. So it's better they're not here. Clearly, a lot of this also has to do with wanting to belong as well, right? Because the community, I think, that these cults provide for a lot of the people you've been looking for that and maybe you didn't even know it. Yeah. I mean, I I know it now and I'm very cognizant of that now and and looking at my whole upbringing from a psychological point of view, it totally makes sense that this would be a natural fit for me to find this community, build community. And what we had here in Vancouver was very different than what was in the headlines. We, you know, we did our goals program. We played volleyball on Fridays. We had barbecues. It was very benign. It's not what you, you know, not was revealed in the trial of what was happening back in Albany, which was quite a shock for many of us. Sarah Edmondson is my guest. She's a former member of what we now know as the cult Nexium. She was there for 12 years. Her book is called Scarred, the true story of how I escaped Nexium, the cult that bound my life. The man who was at the top of this pyramid is a man named Keith Rainier. He's been convicted of sex trafficking, conspiracy, conspiracy to commit forced labor. He will be sentenced early next year. Sarah, did you meet Keith? Yes, I met I met Keith shortly after doing my first 16-day training. He doesn't like to meet people until they've taken enough certain amount of curriculum and by that point you see him and and have been taught to revere him and uh I met him and was very unimpressed the first time. I thought he was just sort of a normal guy. Um but that was spun again as, isn't it amazing how he makes himself so approachable and normal when he's such a brilliant genius? Oh, right. wow. Yeah. You know, and I'm, it's so funny that the look on your face sometimes when you're saying some of these things, it's almost like you yourself can't believe that you went through this. Oh, I can't. I mean, it's every now and then, probably almost every day, I I look back at all of the, the choices along the way and all the different all the different points where I had a red flag, went to somebody, somebody, you know, that I trusted and would they would give me more information, all lies. And ultimately that's that's the hardest pill to swallow is just how much we underestimated the leadership's capacity to lie to us and right. that we trusted them. Uh, one of the things I think you've learned as well as, as anybody learns too once they've kind of researched this is it really preys on your esteem, doesn't mm-hmm. it? About how you feel about yourself. Yeah. And they don't get what they want without kind of tearing some of that down. Right. No, for sure. I mean, when you look at the age I was when I started, I was 27, turning 28, aspiring actor. Had a, you know, technically I was a working actor, but I didn't have the most, you know, fulfilling career. And I wanted more meaning, more purpose. And they gave me something that filled all the, checked all the boxes for me, a community, sense of belonging, although I wouldn't have been, you know, cognizant of that at the time. I just felt good. I felt good being a part of something that I thought was doing know, good. Doing good, yeah, yeah, in the world. And I liked helping people. I've always been a nurturer. My parents are in the in the um, the field of uh, 
Like therapy, therapy and counseling? Yeah, like therapy and counseling. So that's part of my background. And I thought, wow, this is a, a fast track to all of that. This is a fast track to betterment and growth. I personally always like efficiency, and it right. seemed very efficient. When you look back then, Sarah, and yes. think about all of these things that happened, are there particular moments where you're just so disturbed by that moment and what happened? The most disturbing thing, I think, for me has been post since leaving and trying to reconcile the last 12 years and educate myself and educate others and go through therapy. And at the same time, this has been in the media and then also, um, you know, being being on trial, having Keith on trial and, and all the key players. And the things that are were exposed on the witness stand are so much more than that we knew. Like when we decided to go public and blow the whistle, we knew what we knew, which was terrible and bad enough. But then the FBI investigated and found, you know, so much more. And to have those things revealed in terms of other women who were abused, people who were, uh, I mean, Keith did, he, Keith ruined lives ultimately is what it is. He, he brought people in on, under these false pretenses of personal development and changing mm-hmm. the world and then getting people to Albany where he systematically destroyed m- so many people, predominantly women. And that just in, to, in what way? Were there crimes being committed? What was happening? Oh, I mean... It, on the, on the lowest level, not a crime, but just getting people to leave their careers under the premise of, you know, come to Albany, I'm going to mentor you. And then he'd take women on in a, a sexual capacity. And then they would be part of what we now know as the, quote, harem. And so if you think about these people who had flourishing careers here in Vancouver or Mexico or other places around the world, they, they moved to, to become famous tennis players or, um, you know, take their careers to the next level in politics and all different fields. And that was a lie. That was him saying, I'm going to come, mentor, come, come here and I'll mentor you. And then they, they left all those things. I mean, that's, I don't know if that's a crime. It's just awful to, you know, to take someone's dreams away. But in terms of crimes, I mean, he, had, he was doing all sorts of atrocious things to people. We found out there was one woman who was, was locked up for two and a half years. There was um, people who were being blackmailed. There were people, that's, you know, the, the sex trafficking is obviously a huge component of the case where people were being coerced to to have sex with him so what what is your warning then to people like you wrote this book you wanted to tell your story mm-hmm. as we said people when they start out doing this nobody thinks they're actually going to have a meeting about a cult mm-hmm. what would you tell people then I would tell people to just be very skeptical when they're invited to something and find out what the you know who's involved, uh, what what are the motives of the people, and it could be as simple as a cocktail party or you know playing volleyball on the beach or you know some very benign invitation. And I'd I'd look to see if there is a leader that seems to be. Um, no, the main thing is when there's a leader who's not accountable to anybody. There's no governing board, and that leader seems to have all the answers. Also, like, what, are there phrases that you think of, like, um, you know, oh, this is about your wellness, this is about unlocking something? Like, what, what signs do you think people should look yeah, for? Yeah, it could be any of those things. It depends on the cult and if the cult is more spiritual or more business-oriented. But when they're promising something that sounds almost too good to be true, it probably is too good to be true. Or if they're, they're promising something that requires X amount of money, um, to go to another seminar. Yeah, to go to another seminar, which I think is one of the things where things become more culty is when you pay a little bit for something and then you have to pay more for the next more. thing. Yeah. And that's one thing I learned a huge lesson is never join anything you can't graduate from, where it's a never-ending cycle of more and more and more and more classes. 
And uh, I think you can you can learn a lot if you want to better yourself. And I think that's actually one of my messages in the book is that you can better yourself and improve yourself, but it doesn't have to be on the foundation of I'm not good enough. And that's what a lot of these groups prey on. They make you feel crappy about mm-hmm. yourself and promise that you're going to feel better, but that it also means more classes. That is actually some great mm-hmm. advice. Never attend anything that you don't graduate from. Mm-hmm. I think that's really good <laughs> advice. Sarah, thank you so much for your time on this today. Thank you so much for having me. Those are great questions. What a fascinating story. Sarah Edmondson's book is called Scarred, The True Story of How I Escaped Nexium, the Cult That Bound My Life. It is available now